0: Let's pray before we get into the scripture this morning. Lord, your word is truth, and we ask you to apply that truth to our lives this morning. Help us to hear what you want us to know about you and life in you. Pray that your spirit would be opening our hearts and our minds and empowering us to live lives after Christ's image. In his name we pray, amen. I've heard lots of encouraging comments, Chris and James Waldy, about teachings the last two weeks. People were very encouraged, and I want to tag team off what Chris taught last week a little bit. If you weren't here or if you did as were here as a reminder, Chris was talking about Christ as the standard, and he's where we fix our gaze, and we don't lower the standard so we feel better, but He's he is the image we shoot for, and there's a number of things we don't do, and there's a number of things we do in order to... Become more like him. Live the life God wants us to live. Um, as noble as that is. If you've been a Christian very long, you, you find out in short order that, that you have problems doing that. And that the standard is impossibly high. And as you go about with your good resolve to live better and do better and be a better person, you, you find out that, that you fail. And that there's a, it's a tough road. An impossible road. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, Uh, maybe how to do that. As you make that resolve, as you make it your goal to not lower the standard but see Christ as a standard and to live a life that honors him, how do you go about doing that? That's the question we want to answer this morning. Kathy's been reading an old book uh, by Watchman Nee called The Normal Christian Life. Uh, This is an outstanding book. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it to any of you. The title's a little funny in my mind. He says the title of the book is The Normal Christian Life. So when you and I think normal Christian life, this is what the normal Christian life looks like. The trouble is, as you read this book, it's quite clear that what he calls the normal Christian life is the biblical call. It's not reality for you or for me most of the time or much of the time. We would say the abnormal Christian life. His, his book could be titled because what he talks about generally tends to be so far removed from our experience that it would be abnormal, which is a pity, but that's, that's the state of things. And that's generally where most of us live life, kind of at a frustrated level where we see what we're called to, but we just have a hard time living up to it. And that's, that's pretty normal. I want to start by reading an illustration out of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. I've read excerpts out of this before. Uh, This is one of my favorites. In this story, these are voyagers from hell who get a day pass to heaven. They take the bus up there. They get to roam around a little bit and see if they want to stay. So this is obviously fictional, uh, but there's some great points to be made. And there's all these various characters. they are ghosts in heaven because heaven's reality makes them look like just vapor. But uh, one of the characters in heaven there that has the, the day pass is a, a, we would say, morally unclean individual. And just listen to what uh, his experience there is. He says, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial. Let's see. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that. This is an unclean lizard. He's morally unclean. But he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, look out. You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look. It's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll all be right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm feeling frightfully I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. Why? You're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus get an opinion from my own doctor, I'll come again the first thing I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me? Before I knew, it would all be over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hand were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost? I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may? Blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, then flung it broken backed on the turf. Here's our friend, our slimy, greasy, dark, oily friend in heaven. And he sees what's there and he's attracted to it, but he's got a problem because there's a lizard on his shoulder, this whispering entity that whispers to him the dark things of the past and really doesn't want to die. And that's his problem. And my point to us this morning is that's our problem too. We've got a lizard on our shoulder. So when we see the standard of Christ, we've still got this thing going on that's a little hard to escape. And in the end, the scripture says death is the only thing that frees us from this lizard. Let me read you from Romans 7. Paul was no stranger to the spiritual life or the victorious spiritual or Christian life. Listen to what he says, though, in Romans 7. Tell me if you can relate to this yourself. What I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I'd like to do but I'm doing the very thing I hate. No longer am I the one doing it, but it's sin that lives in me because I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, or we would say our old carnal sinful nature, what we were by birth in Adam. The good that I want to do, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin that lives in me. It's the lizard on my shoulder. I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. It's waging war against the law of my mind. Romans 7, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are this great passage about spiritual life. And in Romans 7, the Romans 7 experience is the ghost in heaven with the lizard on his shoulder. He says, I see the standard of Christ, and in my mind I say that's it and that's what I want to do, but when I look at my own life I find out I'm doing the things I hate. There's a lizard on my shoulder and I'm still walking with him, still talking to him, still obeying him. And because of that, On one hand, I want to do right. On the other, I've got this sinful, evil nature within me. He says, it wages war. This is interesting that for the Christian, we've got warfare going on within us because there are two totally conflicting natures in us. That's not true of someone who's not a Christian. The person who hasn't trusted Christ has the nature they're born with all the way back to Adam a sinful nature, totally self-absorbed, totally self-centered and sinful. The Christian gets a new nature. And by nature, that it's the nature of Christ himself can't sin, 1 John talks about, can't sin. But now it's in cahoots, it's next to this nature that can only sin. And there's a war, there's a problem. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, the flesh, that is our old sinful nature, sets its desire some versions say lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. There's this warfare going on inside. Listen to First Peter 2. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain, avoid, refuse, fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. For the Christian, we see the standard. Chris taught about that. And it's what we want inherently because of this new nature. It's what we want. But it's in conflict with this old sinful nature within us that wants anything but righteousness. So we've got this warfare going on. Do you remember when Rebecca is pregnant? Have I got this right? My memory's bad this morning. Uh, Jacob and Esau. And they're wrestling inside her. This one woman's got twins. And one we know heads up God's promised people. And the other heads up as we see kind of a people of flesh, like the world around them. And they're inside her, and they're combating one another's babies. That's what it's like for the Christian. We've got within us these two warring factions. Romans 7 and Peter says, so that we may not do the things we want. The lizard on our shoulder, this Entity within us, with us, that's whispering the wrong things, trying to lead us astray. You know, you will meet many unhappy, unsaved people in your lifetime. But in my opinion, the most miserable people on the earth are people who are saved, but living after the old sinful nature. The most miserable people on earth are not happy pagans or even depressed pagans. They're Christians who have been saved, and so now they've got this inner desire to do right and be like Christ. But when they refuse to do it and just walk after the old nature, it's misery. It's depressing. It's despair. It's a terrible way to live. Those are the most miserable people on earth, I think. And this warfare where we're one thing and we're another and we want to be like Christ, but we're given into this old sinful nature, this this depressing state of affairs is, I'm afraid, where most of us as Christians live for the best part of our life. The upside is it doesn't have to be that way and God has an answer for that which we'll look at. Before we do, let me mention there are lots of ways to uh, silence, lots of attempts at ways to silence the lizard. You know, if you want to lose weight, You can open any newspaper or magazine, turn on your television. You can see a hundred ways somebody's willing to sell you to lose weight and be healthy and have sex appeal and all that stuff. You know, everything the world tells us we need. And you know what? Most of them won't work. You know, if you eat right, get exercise, you know, the boring things, you'll be healthy. But there's a hundred ways to tell you to be healthy and slim and trim and all that stuff, most of which are totally ineffective. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. Before we look at what he says is the answer to our dilemma, listen to what he says is not. In Colossians 2, he talks about not listening to people who delight in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. This is a religious person who will tell you how spiritual he is and what visions God has given him and how to be spiritual And Paul says this guy is as carnal as anyone else around you, even though he looks very religious. He says in verse 20, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Verse 23, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self made religion and self abasement and severe treatment of the body. This is the key phrase but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Most of the time, as, as we see the standard of Christ and we say that's where we want to live, uh, our method of doing this is telling God we're going to be a better person. We make New Year's resolutions. There's a hundred ways we can say we're, we're going to be that good person we want to be. And tomorrow I'll start doing this, and next week I'll quit doing this, and we make these resolutions. Then we jump through some spiritual disciplines Paul says, you can do all kinds of religious disciplines and they will be of no use against the conflict, the warfare that you and I have going on within. They won't kill the lizard, won't happen. So there's lots of ways to not kill the lizard, lots of ways to stay in your misery. But let me suggest the scripture says three things very clearly that for you and I to live the victorious, what Watchman Nee calls the normal Christian life, three things I would say these are somewhat in order. Uh, Death, renewal, and the Holy Spirit. Or the victorious Christian life is based on the fact that you have died, set your mind on things above, and walk by the Spirit in this order. Let me read from Romans 6. God's way of dealing with you and I is radical. You know, if you tell somebody you're going to cut off their arm or their leg or you're going to take a lung out or something, it sounds pretty radical. But sometimes uh, radical situations call for radical measures. And God's method is radical. He doesn't clean you and I up. He kills us. He crucifies us and makes something new. He doesn't ask us to be better people or more moral people. He tells us to live in the new person he's made us, and we can't do that until we realize that we have been crucified. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. He's asking rhetorical questions, and this is what he says. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that God's grace might increase? May it never be. Why? Well, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? What do you mean, Paul? Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, or since we've been united with him in death. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, our old life, the life you and I are born with, from our parents, from their parents, from their parents, all the way back to Adam, knowing this, that our old self, our old man, our old sinful life, was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He who has died is freed from sin. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Colossians 3 says, You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, etc. Galatians 2.20, if there's one single verse that sums this up, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see where we're going with this? If you tell a person today that they are guilty of sin by birth, sometimes they have a struggle with that. But we read this in the Scripture. We are guilty before God as sinners by what we practice and by where we come from. The Scripture says in Romans 5 that you and I were in Adam when he sinned. We say, well, we weren't in the Garden of Eden. But because in a direct line we come from Adam, you could say we were in Adam's DNA, put it any place you like. We don't exist apart from Adam. We have our being, our existence, through him. So God says of us, because we were in Adam when he sinned, he says we've sinned. Why? Because we were in Adam. Then we practice sin, but we sin because we were sinners, born sinners from a sinner. And that we not only practice sin ourselves, but we are inherently guilty of sin because we were in Adam when he sinned. This is the flip side of that same coin. If we say, how could we die with Christ? When you and I are born again, God places his, if you will, spiritual DNA and creates a new life that didn't exist before. We're reborn. Jesus said, you must be born again. Regenerated. For the Christian, there's a life in him that didn't exist before. And because the life comes from Jesus himself, God the Father says that when Jesus died on the cross, you were in him. You died with him. You were buried with him. You rose from the dead with him. And that this is the beginning of a victorious, normal, spiritual life for you and I. It's not a resolution to do better or be better. God says all that you were, I crucified it with Christ. All that we were was was beyond redemption, so to speak. God redeems us by making us new. He doesn't make the old man better. He crucifies it. This sounds odd, and I, I grant you it's hard to grasp. And the only way you can enter into any of this stuff is through faith and Faith isn't hoping or believing beyond hope or something. Faith is acknowledging a solid fact. And God tells us repeatedly in the New Testament that the basis of our freedom from sin is that we died with Christ on the cross. So even if we have trouble grasping that, to recognize that as the truth of God and say, Lord, I understand that my new freedom is based on my death with Christ and I I choose to believe that, as a fact in your word, that's the beginning of our deliverance from our own sinful nature. It's not resolutions. It's not spiritual or religious disciplines. It's the fact that you and I were crucified with Christ. He didn't make us better. He killed us. So, the beginning is death. He's not making us better. He crucified us. What we were... Died with Jesus on the cross. The second thing is renewal. You know, we have a a sinless nature within us. In 1 John, John says that this nature we have cannot sin. Cannot sin. It's because it's Jesus' own life. He is fully righteous, and this new life is fully righteous. When you and I sin, we're following the, the lizard on our shoulder. We're following the old sinful life. That new life within us, it doesn't sin because it can't sin. But H. A. Ironside said this is somewhat like we've talked about a war going on within us between these two natures. He said it's like two dogs. They're in a dog fight. And he says, which one wins depends on which one you say sickem to. Which dog do you encourage to get the other dog? We could say in this line, which dog are you feeding? For us, we've got this new nature, can't sin, side by side with this old nature. Generally, you'll find that the nature you choose to walk in, so to speak, is the one you feed. It's the one you feed. Colossians, listen to this in Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised up with Christ, and you have, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. If you're just an unbeliever living on the earth, your eyes stay at earth's level, so to speak, the things around us, the things we can taste and touch and feel. Paul says here, though, since you've died with Christ and you're in Christ now even, in heaven, that's where you need to set your mind or your affections or your thoughts or your heart. Seek those things above where Christ is. Romans twelve two says, Don't be conformed to this world. You have a nature that's quite at home here. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's say you're 20 years old when you're born again. You've got 20 years of a sinful nature being fed sinful stuff in a sinful world. And then, spiritually, you're a brand new baby. And that brand new spiritual baby needs to be fed. And if it's not, you know what your life looks like? Even though you're a Christian, it looks like a pagan's life. Because that spiritual life is not being transformed or renewed. You're feeding the wrong dog. You can only grow spiritually as your mind is being transformed as you're feeding yourself that new nature on the truth that's in God's word. You know, it's hard to overemphasize the importance of our spending time in the scripture because Jesus said he would take the truth, John 17, and with that truth he would change us. He would set us free. John 8 says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But the context there is if you abide in my word, you're really my disciple. And as you abide in my word, as you live in the truth, as your mind is conformed to the truth, then you'll know the truth, and then you'll be free. Many of us, we've got this new nature. It wants to do right. Romans 7, I rejoice in this inner man, but I'm feeding the wrong dog. The TV shows I watch, the music I listen to, the things, the the places I let my mind roam when I'm sitting alone doing nothing and thinking. Because the battle's there, it's a given that the two natures are within us. It's the one we feed that's going to live big. And so if we're not renewing our mind, if we're not setting our minds on things above, if we're not spending time in God's word, grappling with the truth and having our minds cleansed and transformed, there's no way for this new nature to live big, to have a victorious life because it's fed on the truth. It's the truth that brings us freedom, but you can't be free if you're not in the truth. And that's where transformation of our mind comes in. Paul says in Colossians 3, the same passage, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, Psalm 119, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. Chris taught on on, Psalm one. You know, the righteous man meditates on God's law, his word, day and night. What's the result? Well, he's like this tree, this healthy tree that's just drawing nutrition and water up from a river that's always there. He's always fruitful. That can be you and I. It should be you and I. That should be the normal Christian life. So we don't try and be better. We agree with God there was nothing good in us. And we accept that he crucified us with Christ. He didn't make us better. He didn't clean us up. The solution to our redemption is death. And having been given a new nature, it's our responsibility to feed that new nature, to feed the right dog, to have our minds transformed. And listen, it's a given. It's a given because you live in this fallen world with a fallen nature. It's a given that if you are not proactive, in feeding yourself on the truth, you will not have freedom. It won't happen. It won't happen. That's what, it's just you cannot, if you're not in God's word, this won't happen. won't happen. So the second part of that is after we understand God killed us with Jesus, crucified us, then we renew our minds. We feed that new nature. We feed the dog we want to win the fight. And the third thing is we walk with the Spirit. Let's just say that uh, we accept those first two as givens. We died with Christ and we renew our minds in the truth. The truth really is that even if we've got those two things, you and I cannot live victoriously. We won't have the normal Christian life, so to speak, without the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we talked about Romans 6, 7, and 8, they're a trio and they march us through this spiritual battle and dilemma and in chapter 8, that's where we see we get past the death, we get past renewal, and we get to we're with the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit himself in us that gives us the power to exercise faith in the fact of our death, to renew our mind and to see that truth transform us from within. It does not happen apart from the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You and I experience Christ's life through His Spirit. Jesus physically is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. The Father is in heaven. They're, They're omniscient and they're omnipresent, but it's the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity by which we experience God. And it's him in us. That's the power for the new nature to grow up into Christ's likeness and to do the things that new nature wants to do. Listen to Galatians 5. I say walk by the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Do you want to walk free? You walk with the Spirit. This isn't something where we're on our own, kind of carrying ourselves by our own bootstraps, faithfully reckoning on our death, counting it as true, renewing our mind. But if we're doing, attempting to do this absent from God himself, it just it doesn't work. He is the power. His is the energy to make this stuff true in our experience. Galatians 5.23 says, If we live by the Spirit... Let us walk by the Spirit. I think I've mentioned this, but when we were kids in a family of 11 and we were walking downtown, uh, my dad was very careful and he'd always say, seriously, at every corner, how do we go? And our response was to say, together. And then we locked hands with each other and we walked in mass across the street. Nobody could get lost or run over that way. That's kind of the thought here. Spiritually, we're at the street corner and it's a dangerous place And basically, God's saying, you put your hand in mine, and we'll walk across this thing together. And if our hand is in the Spirit's hand, if we're walking with, by, in the Spirit, we're safe, and this stuff comes about. But it doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. In my life, personally, I feel like I've tried to be as obedient and faithful as I could And you know what you'll still find at the end? If the Holy Spirit isn't in that and behind that, if it's Mike doing his own thing, you just run out of steam. You know, your good intentions won't carry you through. We lack the power to do right in the end. It's the Holy Spirit who has the power, the energy to make this work. It's got to be walking with him. I'll just mention this briefly. Ephesians 4 says... Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Don't quench the Spirit. The truth is, if you're a Christian, Romans 8 says, If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Him for your salvation, you are a Christian and you do have the Holy Spirit. It's a given. He is in you as a Christian, but you can grieve Him. You know, if you're a parent, or if you're a child, Disobedience grieves parents. makes us sad because we want to see our kids do right. Same with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to do right. He wants us to honor Christ. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by disobedience in any one of a, a hundred different ways. Or quenching the Spirit. Don't you at times feel just an impulse to say something to some, someone? And I don't mean a carnal in, impulse. Or, or an impulse to go do something for someone. And you think over it too long and you say, yeah. What would they think? Or, I really don't want to do that, or et cetera, et cetera. But the Holy Spirit is with us and he's in us and it's his power that enables us to walk and to grow and to be like Christ. And we can grieve him and we can quench him and we're the losers when that happens because we lose the satisfaction and the joy of that fellowship. So, as I see it, there's a threefold equation, if you will, to live the normal Christian life and to get rid of the lizard on our shoulder. Uh, It's crucifixion. We've died. It's renewal of our mind, the transformation of our mind. And then it's walking with, hand in hand, if you will, the Holy Spirit. Uh, God didn't clean us up. He crucified us. He made us something new in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. There's something, someone there that didn't exist before. And you know the joy for me in the future is, uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians 4, that in this tabernacle, he means his, his body, he says we groan because spiritually we're undressed and that he sees the end of life on earth and the resurrection as being spiritually dressed. We put on our new clothing, our eternal garb, if you will, and we're free forever from the lizard on our shoulder. We're free forever from anything that's attached to this mortal life we have now. That'll be a glorious day. But even now, we are a new creation. We are, as Christians, something that was not in the world before our rebirth. Old things have passed away, dead in Christ. New things have come. A new person has come. So our death with Christ frees us from what we were, We nourish our new life on the person, work, and truth of Jesus himself in the scriptures, and we walk with the Holy Spirit. We obey. That keeps from grieving him and quenching him. We obey. We walk with the Holy Spirit, and he empowers us to see this a reality in our life. Uh, I started with a a C.S. Lewis uh, illustration. I want to close with a different one. This is from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And uh, Eustace Scrub was this really annoying kid who, uh, he was the center of his own universe. And he was just a pig to everyone around him because he just wanted his own way. And Eustace Scrub is on a voyage. And in this voyage, he's on an island and he has slept on a dragon treasure. And he's woken up to find himself a dragon. Before he went to sleep, he put a band around his arm, a gold band around his arm, And as he's a dragon, this band now is way too small for the dragon-sized arms, and he's in deep pain, and he wants some relief. And Aslan, the lion of Narnia, the Christ figure in this story, comes and puts him in front of a pool to wash in. He says, the water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must first undress. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are a snaky sort of thing and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought that's what the lion means, so I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. Just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they'd been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means that I had another smaller suit on underneath the first, and I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying uh, beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was looking to bathe my legs, so I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others and stepped out of it, but as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. Continues and says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Like the lizard on the shoulder of the ghost in heaven, he had these attempts at getting rid of the dragon that he had become, and all of them were useless. And it wouldn't have mattered how many skins he tore off because what we had to have was a total eradication of something that was before. And only the lion could do it. And the lion tore so deep that he felt like it was death itself. And it was only then that he got rid of the, the dragon he had become. And it's like that for you and I. In fact, in the uh, great divorce, the only two creatures that are redeemed who go to heaven are the lizard And the oily ghost. Because when the man acquiesces and says, Do it, the man and the lizard are transformed into a glorious new man and a glorious great horse. And the man jumps on the horse and rides further up and further in into heaven. But it was only after the death. And so, the secret for you and I, and this is something that, like Eustace, we will struggle with all our lives. But the secret of this transformed life, the secret of being more like Christ, of having a victorious Christian life, of being free from what we were and free to grow in the person we are in Christ now, it starts with death. It's radical. We died with Christ. It continues as we renew our mind. We feed on what's true. And all of that only happens as we walk with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit giving us the power to these things come about in our life. This sounds odd. This was uh, told to me by a Christian many, many years ago. He said, Mike, this is going to sound weird to you. This is the secret. This is it. And you know, it did sound weird. And it still sounds weird. And if you say, how do I put that in practice day by day? All I can say is we read the truth. We say, God, I acknowledge what you've said is true. And I'm relying on your spirit to make it true in me. Let's pray. Father, we're all used to scrubs. We are all dirty, oily ghosts with lizards on our shoulders. Lord, I thank you that Jesus didn't just die for our sins as glorious as that is, but I thank you that we died with him. Lord, thank you that you did nothing in a half measure. Thank you that you didn't placate our sinful natures, but you've crucified them with your son so that we can be free from them forever. Father, help all of us to grapple with these deep foundational truths about what it means and what it takes to live like you, to be like you, to win the battle that is waged in every Christian's life and heart, to see the lizard killed, the dragon slain, the right dog win, Lord. Father, we acknowledge that this only happens by your very presence and your energy, by your spirit in us. And Lord, we just lay ourselves humbly at your feet and ask that your spirit would live big in us. Make us what you've remade us to be in Christ. Let that be more and more true of us by experience as we live out the time you've given us. On the earth. And Lord, thank you for the day that's coming in which we shed, as Eustace did, this mortal coil and the sin that's attached to it and take on forever our heavenly image in Christ and after His. In His name we pray, Lord. Amen.